knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 56, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today we're talking patterning mature bucks, defining their core areas, truck hammer strategies, and much more with Midwest Whitetail's Bill Winky. So stay tuned. All right, welcome back, friends. You're listening to another episode of the Truth From the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast, and happy Wednesday hump day to you if you're listening to this on the day of the release. This show is brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear, the longest, lastest, fastest cutting, toughest tree trimming equipment you have ever used. Simply put, the toughest saws on earth. How tough are they? Tough enough to come with a lifetime warranty, and I uh, I used their toughness to the fullest extent this weekend on my scouting trip. There was a downed tree across an access road that I had to get through in order to kind of finish out my day. And uh, the only way I was going to get through is if I was going to cut that tree in half. I had no power saw. I only had my Wicked Tree Gear saws with me. They did the job. They were much tougher than I was because I probably hurt myself as I was pulling the log across the road. But nevertheless, the Wicked Tree Gear hand saws helped me get through the uh, the impasse, if you will, and uh, complete my day. And so if you haven't yet, uh, you can visit WickedTreeGear.com and you can use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and get yourself 20% discount on any of your Wicked Tree Gear purchases. Uh, we're also brought to you by Exodus Outdoor Gear. The new Exodus Trek camera is a byproduct of all consumer voices who have been excited about the new Exodus trail cameras and what they have to offer, but just can't quite fit a $200 camera into their budget, and that's okay. Uh, a budget-friendly camera backed by the industry's leading warranty is now here. The Trek comes with in at a $145 price point. It has the same proprietary shell design as the Lift series camera, so you're getting the same quality in terms of rigged, uh, r- rugged and toughness, the same five-year warranty and unmatched customer service policies, a 0.7-second trigger, trigger speed, and it also comes with those things that you know and love, the features from the Exodus lift cameras, which are the photo, video, time-lapse, and hybrid modes, and a single-line backlit LED display for easy setup. And you get approximately 20,000 images on one set of lithium batteries. If you'd like to learn more about Exodus draw cameras, check them out at exodusoutdoorgear.com or the partner link at truthfromthestand.com. If you like what you see, uh, save yourself $20 and use the promo code TRUTH at checkout. We're also brought to you by Tecamani Seed. Everything's bigger in Texas, and no matter if you're in the South Midwest or the Northeast, Tecamani has your food plot seed needs covered. See what I did there? A little alliteration. Visit tecamani.com and check out their product selector tool to help you pick 
the right seed for your food plots and use the promo code truth at checkout and save 20%. We're also brought to you by Glacier Coolers, simply the world's finest. We're getting into that time of year where you're going to want to be outside. You're going to want to keep some drinks cold. And obviously this can also help you whenever you are headed into the hunting season, heading to deer camp, or whether you're trying to bring game meat back from one of your adventure hunts. Whether you're hunting, camping, or fishing, you'll enjoy smarter design, stronger construction, and superior insulation of Glacier Coolers. Visit them at GlacierCoolers.com, and of course, use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and save yourself 20%. So we've got a great show for you today. I'm super excited about today's guest, uh, Bill Winky. He's a gentleman of I'm sure needs no introduction from me to all of you. Um, I've tried to, for a while, we've been trying to get uh, get connected and have Bill on the show. Uh, schedules being what they were, um, just kind of continued to miss one another. Probably had something to do with the fact that we were constantly trying to schedule a conversation during the middle of hunting season, which, of course, you know, we're all kind of busy during that time of the year. Our free time is usually eaten up by being in a tree stand or scouting or doing any number of things related to the deer wood. So I figured, what the hell, let's try to get him on in the off season. Probably have a better chance uh, of our schedules syncing up as we're not quite so busy. We haven't quite hit the busy season of all the food plotting and and stuff like that. You know, a lot of us have probably done most of our shed hunting and most of our scouting at this point, at this point, at least for the winter months. So I was hoping that the schedules would be a little bit more conducive in, uh, and they were. So we've talked about a lot of great things with Bill. Um, really talking about patterning mature deer. Of course, he, he gets after some great deer out there in Iowa uh, on his on his farm. I've watched him give a couple of different uh, seminars talking about how he uses trail cameras. So we'll dive a little bit into his trail camera strategy. And overall, you know, Bill is just a wealth of knowledge. He's been in the industry for 25 plus years. He's probably forgotten more about deer hunting than, than I know at this point. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get the line cranked up for Bill Winky. All right, we are live, and you're listening to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today's guest, I'm pretty excited to have on. It's someone who uh, I've watched for a while, have learned a lot. Uh, he's a 25-year veteran of the outdoor industry. If you've read anything related to uh, deer hunting in those past 25 years, you've probably read his writings. Uh, he has a TV show, a web video show, and is the uh, the brains behind the Midwest Whitetail Operation, the, the main show, as well as the the Chasing November uh, video web series. And he is none other than uh, Bill Winky. How are you doing, sir? Good. How are you, Clint? I'm doing okay, man. Not too bad. I'm a little uh, a little worse for wear. I did some uh, some scouting this weekend, hit some large tracts of Ohio public land, and uh, let's just say I'm not in season shape. My legs aren't quite yet. So, <laughs> well. Yeah, you got plenty of time to get ready for that, right? Yeah, yeah. Ho- hopefully, it's uh, it was good though. We found some found some good sign, hit a couple new pieces. Uh, so hopefully this year, hopefully this year will be better better than last, at least from from what we could see so far. Uh, how have you been? What have you been up to? Good. Uh, been doing some uh, shed hunting this time of year. We we organize the business mostly, and and uh, you know try to get as much of that kind of work out of the way as we can during this part of the year because. Pretty soon we'll be uh, planting food plots and you know a lot more actively uh, outdoors and in the field. So I don't say it's a downtime because you can always find something you know related with the business to fill those times. So it hasn't been at least a period where I've done a lot of things uh, other than you know some shed hunting. Right. Yeah. No. I just been kind of itching to a. Uh... To get outside, I did check our family property uh, in Pennsylvania after I did the Ohio Scout, and I have um, I was happy to see that I have three of the uh, up and comers who I was hoping would make it through to next year have made it through. So that was kind of all I needed to see. But uh, for those that might not be as familiar with you as, as say I am, you know, that's, if you wouldn't mind, just give me a little bit of the the Bill Winky one hundred and one, your background, where you're from, professionally, you know, what all you get into. Okay, uh, actually, <clears throat> excuse me, I started out uh, in. Uh, an engineering field 
right out of college. And I suppose like a lot of people, I was looking out the window and wishing that I was on the other side of the window uh, <laughs> every day. So, and, and, and sometimes, you know, you, you just kind of stumble into things. And, and uh, I didn't get up one morning and say, I'm going to be an outdoor rider. Um, but I did get up one morning and said, you know, I'm going to find out what's out there. Um, and just kind of bounced around some. My wife and I, shortly after we got married, we started traveling around and just, you know, kind of got out of our comfort zone, did uh, a lot of different small odd jobs. You know, I went back to helping farmers, you know, pruning walnut trees and baling hay and building fence and stuff like that, you know, to pay the bills. And uh, you know, so we kind of kicked around for a while. And uh, through that process, I, I bumped into a fellow that, uh, went on to become the editor at Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine. Uh, his name was Greg Tinsley. And that I had done a lot of writing as a kid. It was one of my secondary passions, I guess. I loved to read, so I enjoyed writing. Uh, so it was pretty natural then when he went back to Peterson's Bowhunting that uh, I got my writing career started sending a few pieces to Greg. So that's kind of where it all began. It was sort of, like I said, it wasn't a, a very prosperous um beginning point and I certainly didn't you know come into any kind of over spoon it was you know we were scraping the bottom baling hay to pay the bills and stuff like that but it was it was an interesting time exciting anytime you're out of your comfort zone um, it's going to be pretty stressful but it's also pretty exciting because really anything can happen then Uh, so that's kind of the 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 way back part of it Uh, and obviously since then you know you kind of highlighted some of the areas that I've gotten involved with since then. So it's been, uh, you know, it, once you get into something, uh, it's a lot easier to figure out what to do next than when you're sitting on the outside looking at it saying, you know, what can I do? Uh, the, my advice is just get in and then figure it out. You know, it's not, it's not the advice most kids' parents you know, want the, their kids to hear <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because they want them all to have some kind of stable income. But, you know, when it comes to living a a life that you're excited about sometimes you have to take a few risks and there's no better time to do that than when you're young and you don't have anything to lose right yeah no i totally agree there it's funny because you know i started the podcast just off uh you know i'd moved back to pennsylvania and um you know lived near philadelphia so didn't have a lot of friends necessarily in that area that were were big hunters hunters necessarily you know you know particularly because living in a you know a large metropolitan area and i started this just kind of out of a want to meet other hunters and talk deer hunting and stuff like that. And then it's funny you mentioned, you know, of course you got your start in writing and I wrote my first article that got published this, this month, um, which I was pretty excited about. Um, so it's been a little bit of a build for me too. And it's just one of those things where it's like you get in, you meet some really good people and, um, eventually an opportunity will kind of present and you just kind of take it from there. And, you know, the work, I always kind of like to use the, the, the quote that the work will, will, will teach you how, um, you don't really know how to do it until you start doing it. I, I use that motto as I was, as we raise our daughter, cause every day is, you feel like you don't know what you're doing, but if you just wake up every day and go to, go to work, it, it'll, it'll teach you how to do it. So that's kind of the approach yeah. you take. Yeah. And I think so. It, it just comes down to your passion and your commitment. Um, you know, if your passion is, is unquenchable and your commitment is, is solid, uh, you'll find a way. And it's, uh, it may not be comfortable or smooth, but, uh, it's kind of like our son was asking me this morning, we were eating breakfast and I was saying something to him about when I first started this business, I'd, I thought, well, I'll go as hard as I can for five years, you know, and that, and everybody says, oh, I'll go as hard as I can, but they go like 
50% as hard as I can. Right. You know, but I went 100% as hard as I could. Like every waking moment, you know, I was focused on trying to find a way to grow my business or get better at my craft. Then after five years, I thought, dang, I'm not far enough along yet. <laughs> so right. I thought, well, I'll go as hard as I can for five more. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, after 10, I look at my situation, I'm like, oh, I'm not far enough along yet. I know, right. And 15, then 20, then 25 years. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's been a half of my life. I've, I've just been, you know, basically going wide open as hard as I can go. And, and then, like I told him, he said, well, is that rewarding? And I said, well, you know, looking back on it probably, but, you know, if, had I known what I was getting into when I started, there's a pretty good chance I wouldn't have done it. Um, you know, so ignorance is bliss. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to overanalyze because you'll find some reason not to do it. You always can find a reason, you know, to avoid risk. Um, so I'm just glad I didn't know, you know, how, how, how tough the struggle was going to be. You know, it's like climbing a really high mountain or something. You know, you, you just go climbing along, you know, and you're like, dang, this mountain isn't getting any shorter, you know. And right. just, you, you go and you go and you go and you go. And then finally, you know, after all this effort and time, you're at the top. Um, but halfway up the mountain, you're thinking, well, I'm halfway here. I can't stop now. Um, but had you known at the base of the mountain how, how you were going to feel halfway up, you wouldn't have started. Right. Exactly. I think, you know, it, it's funny that you mentioned it that way because I think, you know, if you think about it in terms of like scouting, right, it's like we ran into a situation yesterday where we hiked to the top of this ridge. It was, you know, pretty long hike and we got up there and then I wanted to see what was on the other side of it. And once we got up to the top, I mean, the other side was just a wall of brush and briar. And it was one of those things where it was like, I want to see what's at the bottom. There's really only one way to get there. I've already got all the way to the top. It'd be a waste of time if I don't go to the rest of the way. So you just kind of head down and barrel through it. Um, yep. And, you know, and we were, you know, justly rewarded too once we once we got there. And I think that that's kind of the the motto for if you want to get into the outdoor industry or any industry for that matter is just yeah. put, put the work in, put your head down and grind. And there's going to be some bumps along the way. You know, I don't think there's ever anything that's worth having that you don't encounter some of those things. Cause if it were easy, everyone would do it. Um, yeah. you know, and just, and stay committed. And especially if you're passionate about it, you'll, you'll figure out a way to do it. And, and I think the encouraging part about that is, is you say if it was easy, everyone would do it, but everyone can do it. Exactly. You know, so you, yeah. you, you just have, have to make, you have to make that uh, commitment. Yeah. It has to be burning inside of you or there has to be something else that drives you. There's got to be something that, that pushes you forward uh, harder than that, that headwind that you're going into. Um, and and uh, I think almost anybody that has a business that eventually ends up being successful will give you that same story unless somebody you know handed them the business. Because um, if you have to build it, it almost doesn't matter what it is. Um, you're going to face a lot of headwind. Right. Yeah. And if, if you, if you build it, you really kind of, you, you're willing to take, take the care of it that it deserves and give it its, its time. But speaking of, of building, um, you know, and building toward <laughs> building towards deer season here, um, I wanted to ask you, man, how was your, how was your 2017 season? Cause I feel like you, you built to like a pretty good, uh, pretty good outcome this year. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. The, the, we're still kind of unburying or, or digging out from the, 2012 EHT that we had here mm -hmm. in this part of the state. So our overall numbers are still bouncing back. And, you know, it sounds like five seasons in or five years in, you know, it, it should have taken care of itself by now, but uh, we got hit really hard. So that means that, you know, the, the number of bucks in the pool dropped down significantly. Right. It, it just takes a long time. So, you know, I've had a couple of decent years along the way since then, but you know, the consistency of, of what's on the farm just isn't there yet. Uh, 
I think there'll be some really, really nice four-year-olds this year, what I think. But, you know, when I used to shoot four-year-olds, and you know, there's a little part of me that says I should go back to shooting them again. <laughs> but <laughs> right. I had a conversation one time with Mark Drury, and he said, uh, I can't remember what it was. It, oh, I think I was asking him, so so what do you do? Because he had the EHD problem, too. I said, so what do you do when there aren't any five-year-olds on the farm? He said, well, we just start shooting four-year-olds, <laughs> and I was like, "Well, okay," right. <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not sure that that I'm going to do that. But there should be some really nice younger bucks this year. That you know, relative to our area, a four-year-old is you know that's middle age. Right. It's not an old deer, and every place is different. I mean, if you're hunting in PA, you know, a two-year-old deer is probably middle-aged, and a three-year-old is an old deer. Um, you know, here a three or a four-year-old deer is a middle-aged deer. Five, six, seven are are old deer. Um, so it's all relative, but um, so I've got a. I should have some really nice bucks in that range that are going to be very tempting, and probably maybe four or five decent targets that are going to be older deer, but probably not you know big antler deer from what I can tell. Uh, but they're still fun to hunt. I mean, anybody that that uh, or anytime you pick out a specific deer to hunt and you focus on that deer, and even if he's not a giant antler buck, it's still a lot of fun. Well, yeah. The quest quest becomes personal then. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know that knowing that you've got some deer that you're going after this year, um, you pick one out and you say, well, this is the deer I'm going after. And then, you know, you got to learn a lot about that individual deer. You've got to think way differently than just going out and getting into a tree and hoping something comes past. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This, this year, this past year was the first year that I hunted a deer that I had multiple years of, you know, uh, experience with, whether it was through trail cameras or whether it was through on the hoof sightings. Um, and it's, it's, it's weird. It gets, it gets very personal, you know? And so I'm looking forward to, to that hunt this year, but I wanted to ask you, cause I started watching some, some videos there last week, just kind of, you know, every year around this time, I, I go through a bunch of your videos cause during hunting season, of course I'm, I'm grinding. And then I usually use, uh, the off season to do my binge watching of the Midwest whitetail uh, shows and the uh, chasing November shows. Um, but I was yep. watching some, some videos about the wide 10 that you were, you had hunted and harvested. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was just curious, you know, with that particular buck, did you have a ton of history with him, or I guess just give me a little bit of the backstory for that buck? Well, we 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 knew about that deer for several years. Um, he was always about the same size, and he lived in more or less the same area. His range got a little bit smaller each year as he got older, but uh, he was one of those bucks that around here um, he would have been a little bit lower, you know, on the antler score list if if there were some really nice solid bucks on the farm and. <clears throat> Like I said, I'm kind of working my way through, you know, the ups and downs. So he he rose to the top of the list um, this past season for a couple of reasons. One is because he was very daylight active in a very small area, so it was going to be fun to hunt him. Um, you know, deer like that are a blast, you know, because you know that with, you know, almost 50-50 chance when you go in there, if you don't mess it up, you got a you know, pretty good chance of seeing that deer. Um, so that's a lot of fun. You know, then you don't have to be um, – putting a bunch of pressure on you can wait and do it the way it's supposed to be done you know because you realize if you don't mess it up that it's probably going to work out so so those are fun and he lent himself to that kind of hunting so he became my number one target um going into the the middle of october that part of season Uh, but i knew i knew of him from past years of running trail cameras in that area I'd never seen the deer on the hoof before because I'd never specifically hunted in that area because he would pop up on those cameras and, you know, he just didn't grab my eye. It's like, ooh, that's a pretty nice buck, you know, one of those deals. And then you pull the card out of maybe a camera that's a 
you know, a quarter of a mile away or something, you go, wow, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to hunt this one. And then you forget about that, you know, that 10 pointer. So, you know, I had some history with him, uh, several years of trail camera photos of that deer, but I'd never specifically hunted him before. Right. Was there anything in particular, I guess, you know, you mentioned that he was daylight active. Was there anything in particular that helped you decide that this buck was huntable and, and patternable? Like, I know you said his, his home range kind of kept shrinking. Was that one of the things that you looked at as far as, I mean, I know you mentioned that he was kind of one of those bucks that kind of jumped out last minute at you, but was there anything, I guess, that you kind of noticed and was like, yeah, this is what I'm, who I'm going to target this year, knowing that his antler size wasn't the, you know, the, the, the end all be all as far as like targeting. Was there something that kind of stuck out to you? Like, Hey, this, this would be a really fun deer to hunt. Yeah. I think the, the things that I always look for, I try to pinpoint the quote unquote personality or the behavior traits of the deer, the various ones that are old enough, in my opinion, on the farm to hunt. And then, you know, it's, it's tempting to say I'm going after the biggest one, you know, because everybody wants to shoot one with big antlers, but I've learned the hard way that, uh, that's no fun either. Cause I've hunted deer. I hunted one buck for a whole season. I hunted him for 50 plus days. Cause you know, in my line of work, I can, I can find ways to, to be in the field, even if I have to work, you know, late at night or get up at three in the morning or whatever, you know, I can find a way because I'm self-employed be, in the tree just about every day and I never saw him um you know I just hunted over and day after day and like after a while I just felt like I was hunting a ghost you know it just wasn't any fun uh I I shouldn't say it wasn't fun it got discouraging right uh it's a different kind of fun you know you got to take your you know you're in the field it's you know you're enjoying being in a tree stand but when it's 20 degrees out and wind's blowing 20 miles an hour right in your face. <laughs> right. And you realize that this has been, you know, 45 days of hunting this deer that you've never seen. Um, that takes, takes a little bit of the fun out of it. So I try to avoid those situations now. Um, I'm not always going after the biggest deer on the farm that's old enough. So getting back to your question, the two things that I look for most, obviously number one is, is the deer showing up in daylight on my trail cameras. Um, and, and if he is, uh, then I start to move my cameras around a little bit to figure out where is his range, where is he most active. And, and I'm obviously trying to do that without educating that deer, bumping him or kind of putting him off his pattern. Uh, but I want to learn as much as I can about him, not only to figure out where is a good place to put my tree stand, but just to determine, you know, is is this pattern holding up? I mean, is he truly, you know, this active uh, in in this area and less active someplace else? Am I in the middle of his core area? You know, so you're just trying to get a, a little bit of a, you know, a, a finer understanding of where this deer is living. Um, you know, if it's during the season, you got a buck in daylight on your trail cameras, you're not really thinking about, well, I got to fine tune this. You're trying to figure out, you know, where, where to put your tree stand, you know? So most of what I'm talking about might be going into the season or the very earliest parts of the season you know, where you don't want to put a bunch of pressure on a deer that you haven't quite got figured out yet. Um, so I'm looking for those two things. I mean, ideally, you're getting daylight pictures and lots of them. Right. And if that's the case, you're probably right in the middle of his, his uh, or right on the edge of his core area. He's got a pretty small range because he's there a lot, and he's daylight active. That's a pretty easy deer to kill, you know, as long as you, you're careful about the other stuff that, you know, most people understand, you know, enter and exit route and how to play the wind and, you know, picking tree stands where the deer don't see and stuff like that. Um, 
and then I'm less aggressive typically um, on a deer that's got a small range than I am on one that maybe has a larger range just because you, you don't really feel like it's a ticking clock necessarily. Um, you know, on a deer that's got a big range, he might be on the neighbors, you know, he's moving in daylight. It's like, dang, they're going to kill him if I don't, you know, make my play. Um, but if he's got a small range and the range is more or less on your hunting area and, you know, you can afford to be more careful. Um, and that's just a fun way to hunt, I think. All or nothing, that, that makes me pretty nervous. Before we continue our conversation, let's talk about Wicked Tree Gear saws. Hardcore deer hunters need tools that can keep up. We don't baby our gear and taking on whatever Mother Nature happens to dish out on our hunts. Check out Wicked Tree Gear hand saws and pull saws at wickedtreegear.com. Use promo code TRUTH to save yourself 20% on your next purchase with free ground shipping. And get a saw that's tough enough to work as hard as you hunt. Right, yeah. Now, I, I'm definitely going to hear you there. I, I so I started thinking as you, as you were kind of going through the, the the things that you're looking for, you know, what's your approach? Because this guy, of course, had a small core area, and he, as you mentioned, he was showing up a lot in daylight and you know, on trail cameras and stuff. You know, what 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 would you do in in the sense or in the case that you knew that he was using your property during daylight? Let's say often enough to make you say that I think this deer is huntable, but you knew that he was living off of your property because that was kind of what i ran into this year the 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 buck i'd you know hunted the past two years was i knew he wasn't betting on our property and wasn't living there per se he would show up early season and hit hit the clover food plot he would then kind of disappear till about mid-october then he would show up uh, for just a handful of days in daylight and then he would go nocturnal until the end of the season and then i would usually get just before dark pictures of him in late season. So I basically got a chance to put one hunt on him for him this year. And I, I saw him within bow range only that he was with a group of deer and one got right underneath my stand wind shifted. The one deer got a little nervous and just turned around. They didn't blow out. They just turned around and walked away. Um, he ended up getting killed during, during gun season. Um, so what would you, what would your approach be if you had one kind of like that, where you knew he was using your property during daylight during specific periods, but it wasn't, it was almost more of an annual pattern versus a core area pattern how would you approach that yeah those are harder um i think in that situation you have to be ready to make your move as soon as you see daylight activity um you know and it's it's one of those deals where you know again like i mentioned earlier you're trying to figure out what the behavior or characteristics are or quote unquote the personality of that deer is and the more you you find out the more you learn about that the more you, you start to put the pieces together and say, well, you know, my risk versus reward is going to be better if I do this, or if I don't hunt him aggressively, I'm never going to get him. And, you know, you can start to formulate a plan, but if you kind of know that about that deer, as soon as you get daylight pictures, it's almost like you have to be checking the camera consistently, like regularly. And as soon as you get those, those pictures, you got to hunt that day if you can. Um, the other thing that I've found, you know, if he's coming there for food, you know, then it's an early and late season pattern. If he's coming there just randomly, you know, then, you know, it's not quite as precise about, you know, when to hunt or, or how to hunt. Um, so you kind of have to, you know, if he's, you know, I mean, you could go through the whole story of, of your history with that deer and I could probably say, well, here's what I think, you know, but sort of, of putting all the pieces out there on the table and trying to put the puzzle together with all the pieces, it's kind of hard to, you know, to, to come up with a strategy. But, in general, what I say in your situation, if you know that's the case, you're better off hunting more aggressively 
then less aggressively, which means as soon as you see daylight activity, make your move, or another thing I fall back on a lot is when that first cold front comes through, um, or any October cold front um, typically is going to be a good opportunity for deer that are marginally daylight active um, or, or not daylight active at all um, to make their first daylight appearance. So those are those are kind of my triggers. Um, if his core area is small or his, his range is small and he's entirely on you, then you can afford to be um, more conservative and not run any risk of spooking him because you don't feel like there's a ticking clock. But in your situation, you know, I feel like every time you have any idea that he's around, you need to go. Yeah. And it, that was exactly what I did. I had, it was, and it just so happened that it be, it was uh, a cold front came through on opening day and I was in a tree. I was in the pinch point where I thought he was going to have what he was going to have to use. And sure enough, it, it, it played out, but unfortunately it was, you know, like I said, I only got that one hunt for him. Actually a good buddy of mine killed him during gun season on that property. Um, so I was happy at least for him that, you know, one of us got him. But uh, I wanted to I wanted to ask you. I know whenever I was watching that video about the wide ten, you know, you had mentioned he was, you know, you got a, that opportunity at him because he was kind of chasing a a hot doe, and it was early in the season, if if memory serves. And you were mentioning, you know, just you know, getting on big bucks early. A lot of times, if you can find that first doe or that first doe group that's going to come into estrus, that's a great opportunity to find, you know, you know, a nice buck. Um, early in the season. I was just curious if you have any methods or any approaches that you use to kind of determine how your doe families are going to cycle in on your property or where the dominant doe family is or which doe family is the one that's going to come into estrus first? Yeah, I don't know that, that I have an answer for that one. I think there might be some way to know. Um, a biologist might be able to say, well, if you monitor this, this, and this, and you see this type of behavior, my guess is that it's just not practical in an open-range fencing situation to have you know, that much knowledge of, of the behavior of specific does. Um, you know, I think historically uh, a certain doe will probably come into estrus more or less the same time from year to year. I don't know that a hundred percent, but I know there are some that come in as early as the middle of October. Um, cause you'll see some of those bigger fawns, you know, every once in a while I see this fawn that's like, wow, that's, you know, or even, a what should be a button buck that has little, you know, half inch spikes instead, you know, that's not, probably not a year and a half old buck it's probably a half year old buck um you know so there are those that do that do breed in the middle of october but it's a really small number i think if you knew where one of those lived um you'd want to spend your time in the middle of october you know around that area but again you'd have to be really really uh dialed in you know way way better than me on on what the does are doing um that's what i'm really focused on mostly is just being around does in the area that the buck that I'm most interested in hunting lives. So then you're just playing the odds, you know, that, that, you know, that time of the year, that first few days of November, um, you know, it's pretty likely that one of them is going to get him frisky. Um, so as long as you're around the does and you're not spooking them, there's, there's a much better chance of, of uh, picking him up then than maybe at any other time during the season. Right. <laughs> The one thing I started trying to do a little bit is figuring out where my best food sources are and where what doe families were going to kind of reserve the best food sources because I guess my theory was, you know, if they're the healthiest because they have the best cover and the best food, that means their body should then kind of act on a normal cycle and they should mm-hmm. possibly be the first ones to come in. And then, you know, on down the line, second doe family group, third doe family group, and those would be maybe how I would follow the rut potentially of where I'm going to 
you know, where I'm going to set up stands based on where those families, their, their families live at different parts of the season. Um, that was one thing I've picked up, you know, just in some reading and some listening and stuff like that. It seemed logical, but I don't know that there's necessarily any science that backs up that, uh, that, uh, that approach. Um, I think it's too random. Right. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that you shouldn't pursue that because you might learn you know, that it works or doesn't work, but you may learn something else in the process of, of trying to figure that out. But, you know, it's not like, let's say you've got, if you've got completely different properties, let's say you've got one in the mountains and it's all um, wide oak acorns and you've got another one in the ag area, it's all corn and beans. And, uh, you know, you're trying to figure out, you know, which ones are most likely to be on a, on a consistent ester cycle, probably the, the ag ones are right. probably, but I wouldn't even say that a hundred percent, you know, because their condition should in theory be a little bit better than the ones that are living, you know, off browse and, and the third timber where there's not much browse. Mm-hmm. And you see that sometimes in these forested public areas, um, you know, you'll see, you know, several thousand acres where it's more or less mature timber. Um, you know, those deer aren't going to be as healthy and, and as fat as the ones that, you know, have an ample uh, agricultural food supply to feed on. So there might be something to it doing that. But if you say I'm on one piece of property and the ones that are coming to the this food plot or this field are probably healthier, I don't think you can do that because the other ones have just as much health too. I mean, they've got the same options. They might be doing it at 2 in the morning or something. And, you know, I just don't feel like the variability uh, within a small enough area would make that worth pursuing but if you're again if you're looking at completely separate types of habitat then it's probably something to consider boat trader is america's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from we offer simple comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell find and finance new or used boats visit boattrader.com to get started right and that was that was you took the words kind of right out of my mouth it's like especially in ag land it'd be really hard because there's so much food available yeah it might be able to do it more in mountain ground where maybe there's a a food source a really good food source there's one right and so maybe the dominant group is going to you know bogart that one to a degree you might be able to make a play there but i think you're right in in terms of ag land that'd be really really hard to hard to do but i want to shift gears here a little bit and i want to talk a little bit about you know, talk a little bit about rut hunting, but I also want to talk about how you use trail cameras. Cause I had, I met you, you know, not this past year, but the year before at the Harrisburg outdoor show. And you gave a great talk about how you use trail cameras to pattern overall. Um, and wanted to dive into that a little bit. So if you wouldn't mind, could you give me just an overview of how you use your trail cameras and the, the data that you use to make a plan for your season? Okay. Uh, I always start each year with a, well, sometimes you got like you, you've got some history with some deer that you're going to look for when the time comes. <clears throat> for me, I, I don't run cameras until about the 10th of September. Um, prior to that, the bucks are more or less on their summer patterns and their summer ranges. And those won't necessarily be the same as their fall ranges. Uh, there might be a little bit of overlap with some of the bucks, but a lot of them are going to completely move into a different range. So, you can actually confuse the issue by starting too soon. Uh, everybody thinks there's no, no such thing as too much information, but there is if the information is wrong. Right. Um, <laughs> so so you, you want to start after they've shed their velvet and they've broken up their bachelor groups, they're going to filter out and uh, settle into their fall ranges. And uh, that usually takes place sometime early September. So if you get started sometime around the 10th or the 15th with your cameras, you're going to start to pick up you know, the early part of that uh, 
uh, settling in process. Uh, so that's when I start. And I'll target areas where I think there's a deer that, that I've left over from the year before and try to find him back. Um, but I'll also cast a pretty wide net, and I'll put cameras in a lot of different places where maybe I don't have any deer that I'm specifically looking for, but you don't know what might have moved. You know, sometimes they'll change ranges. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happens that's not 100% predictable. Um, so you cast that wide net. You find, say, a couple, hopefully, the bucks mm-hmm. that you're excited about hunting. Now you, you start to zero in a little bit more on those deer. And let's say maybe you've got six cameras, and they're spread out all over the place, but then you find these two deer that are potentially you know, bucks you'd hunt. They may not even be showing daylight movement patterns yet, but you've at least found targets. Um, then I would start moving the cameras in a little bit more around those deer to try to figure out how big their ranges are, um, learn as much as you can about them without crowding them. So you're looking for camera locations where your coming and going isn't going to spook those deer or alert those deer. So for me, that means field edges, um, you know, someplace where, you know, a farmer, you know, or myself included might drive the truck occasionally, you know, to go back into the edge of a field or, or a four-wheeler, you know, that this is ag country where I live too. And, uh, there's a fair amount of human activity. You know, it's not right. big national forest where, you know, they smell one person and like, oh my gosh, you know, the world's <laughs> come to an end. Right. You know, because the only time they have any association with people in those big areas is when somebody tries to kill them. Right. Um, so in this more ag country, there, you know, there, there's a fair amount of non-threatening normal human activity that the deer will tolerate. Um, so you can kind of fall into that human pattern and you can put your cameras in places where the deer will accept your coming and going. Uh, and again, you may only pick up pictures at night, but so here's the interesting part. The direction that they're coming from when they approach that camera in an evening uh, is going to tell you more or less where to move next or where they're bedded. So their butt is pointing more towards their bedding area uh, in the evening than, than you know at any other time. So that's, that's kind of what I look for. If I'm not on a daylight pattern with this deer, I've got some idea at least where he's coming from. Like, let's say he shows up at the camera at 10 o'clock, but he's always coming from the northeast. Well, he lives over there somewhere, you know, and, and I'm not in his, you know, his core. Uh, I want to find a way to get as close to his core as I can without spooking him because that's where his chances of being on his feet in daylight are the highest. So I'm going to backtrack if I can. If it's still on my property, I'm going to backtrack in the direction that he was coming from. Um, so it might take a few days, you know, before you get a couple of events on the camera where you're like, okay, I got a pretty good idea where that deer's coming from. Well, if you can, you know, do a little hopscotch, you know, and jump. And you can say, well, he's probably living in this little piece of timber right here, you know, and he's just not getting over here until well after dark. I wouldn't go and put my camera right on that little piece of timber. I'd jump it and go to the other side of it and, and see, you know, what you're getting on that side. So you're kind of like, almost like you're, you're taking a target. And you, little by little, you anticipate where the middle of the target is, but you never go there until you've disqualified other sides of the target. Um, so then little by little, by process of elimination, you figure out where he's living, um, not by just diving right in on top of him and throwing the camera right down there where you think he's probably bedded, <clears throat> because that's obviously going to create a lot of problems. So there's a lot of, it's a, it's maybe an art form at that point of, of trying to be delicate and gain as much information as you can without being heavy-handed. Um, and, and I don't know if I'm, I'm making a really clear, you know, a clear message of this for everybody to, to grab into, but 
some people will at least, and they'll figure out what I'm trying to say, and they'll they'll realize that it's a process of elimination, finding the box core area sometimes more than it is a process of you know just getting on top of it. Right. Um, so I usually will jump. I usually don't go right pinky's living. I usually go all the fringes around that and see if I'm picking him up. You're coming from where I think he's living. And, and uh, little by little, you either figure it out or you don't. I mean, you're not going to figure them all out. You know, that's the unfortunate part is there's going to be a certain percentage of the bucks that you're excited about that you'll never figure out until maybe the second or the third year of hunting that deer. Uh, you know, sometimes it takes that long if they survive long enough, you know, to finally put the pieces together. Um, but that, that's why you, you want to have the wide net so that you can move on to one that's easier to figure out because um, they're not all the same. Some of them are easy and some of them are, are hard. Um, so the more targets you've got, um, the more likelihood there is, if you have enough time to, to search them all out, the more likelihood that you know one of them is going to be a lot easier to kill than the others. Right. It's it, it's funny because right after I'd watched you or listened to you give that presentation, um, that deer that I was hunting this year, it, I did exactly kind of how you explained it and how you presented it during during your presentation. You know, and, and for those out there listening, you know, it's like I had a clover field where this where this deer was showing up, you know, late, late summer headed into September. Um, and then I thought I knew how he was getting there. Right. Just kind of what you're saying, like you have to start making some educated guesses on how you think he might be ending up at that camera destination point. And so I did exactly as you said, I started backtracking to where I thought the most probable pinch point was um, that he would have to travel through in order to get to where I was getting pictures of him at. And I knew from a previous year, I had a picture of him on this crick bottom. So I knew that he was spending time down there. Um, so I went to this pinch point saying this has to be a logical place that he would be. I have a picture of him over on this side. So I know he's in this area. And sure enough, I hung a camera this year. I backtracked to that pinch point, got him on camera in daylight, which was really hard, like in, in the fall to get pictures of him in daylight. But that was the one place I got pictures of him in daylight. And it was, you know, kind of Yahtzee. There he is. You know, that's I had backtracked yeah. him to the point that I couldn't. I couldn't backtrack him any further because he was betting on the neighbor's property, but I knew in, you know, in general sense, I guess, of where he was at, um, which is what allowed me to kind of, kind of set up on him. I think it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, what direction the the deer's rear end is, is pointing during the evening is pointing toward his, his bed. Cause I didn't think of that. That was ultimately how I figured out where his, where his bed was, was, was just using that. But I didn't think of it in, in that sense. I have this, this nice deer on this new property that I'm hunting this year. He's one of the three that made it through. Um, I have a lot of daylight pictures of him, um, you know, in the morning, probably like around eight 30, especially he doesn't show up on the property until probably right around the time you mentioned about putting cameras out, you know, mid September ish, but I don't yeah. get a lot of pictures of him in the evening, you know, heading back or heading from his, his daytime bedding area. How would you approach, I guess, you know, trying to get after a deer that's showing himself in the morning, you know, and, but not necessarily in the evenings. So I don't know where he's spending his daytime betting hours. Uh, how would you approach kind of trying to dial that guy in? Well, if you're seeing in, in the mornings or picking him up in the mornings and not in the evenings, he's probably betting somewhere around there, but he's probably feeding someplace else. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I would say is, is uh, maybe if you have the chance to put a little, uh, we call them poor man food plots, a little quarter acre plot someplace not too far from where you think the deer might be bedding, you could anchor him a little bit more. Um, you might encourage him to spend a little bit more time in the evenings around your hunting area before he goes someplace else. And, uh, you know, I do it pretty consistently here. I mean, it's one of my favorite ways to hunt, and it's not super expensive. Everybody thinks, oh, man, you know, the food plots are for, 
you know, people who either lease land or own land or have a bunch of money or have equipment or whatever, but none of that's even really true anymore. Um, we've kind of proven that over the years with some of the stuff that we've done here. We call them poor man plots, and a lot of our viewers have started to put those onto areas where they have permission to hunt, uh, not even leases or, or ownership. Of course, you got to get, you know, permission from the landowner to do it, but uh, what happens then, of course, is you, 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 uh, um, you give the deer a place to go when he gets on his feet to check it. It's more of a social thing. You know, he'll, he'll feed there a little bit, but he just wants to see if there's any scrapes around the edge of it, you know, just kind of check things out, you know, stretch his legs a little bit <clears throat> and then go off on his day you know, or his night, I guess, really. <laughs> right. But, but in, the, in the mornings then, before he beds, a lot of times they'll hit these same spots again. So it's sort of like the last place they go in the morning before they bed and the first place they go when they get out of their beds in the evening, you know, is these little... I call them staging area or micro food plots, you know, poor man plots. Um, a couple of those scattered strategically near where you think that deer might be bedding could be what tips it in, in your favor for the evening hunts. Um, mornings, you know, it's really hard to hunt a buck in his bedding area. I mean, it can be done, but it's it's more of a last gasp thing for somebody and or something like that where they don't really feel like they have any control over their environment. There's just... You know, they know where Buck is betting in a certain area. They dive in on top of him, hope to kill him. If they don't, they move on. Um, but if you're hunting private land or have, you know, some control over the area that you're hunting, it's pretty risky to, to try to hunt a buck where he beds. Um, you know, not saying it can't be done, but, I mean, you got to get there pretty early. You know, if you miss the spot a little bit because you don't know exactly where he goes each day and he doesn't necessarily bed in the same exact hole, you know, every single day. Um you could mess it up pretty bad, um, you know, going in there and doing that. So I'm not a big fan of trying to hunt bucks where they bed, which means that I'm more trying to hunt them in the direction where they feed, not necessarily where they feed, but, you know, they're going looking for does, and they know the does in the evenings are going to be near the food, so they go drifting off toward the food in the rut. And in the mornings in the rut, I don't even care where that buck beds. All I care about is where the does bed. Right. Um, because that's where he's going to come in the mornings is come, you know, cruising through that area. Um, so I've never been, I've never been one that put a lot of energy into what I learn on morning pictures of bucks, okay. uh, other than to say, well, I think he's probably bedding around here somewhere, which helps me to isolate his core area. But then I'm trying to figure out, okay, where does he go in the evenings? You know, I'm not, yeah, I don't know. It, it's kind of, you, you, you'll figure it out once you start putting your brain to it. It's just more risky trying to hunt morning patterns of bucks. Yeah, it's um, this guy. He's I have him on two separate. Have him on two different cameras. The only thing that he's shown up on this is, is this is a private piece. It's about it's a you know smaller yeah. piece, about sixty acres. I'll be putting a, 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 a smallish food plot in for for some it'll be small, for some it might be big. It'll probably be about an acre and a half because uh, he's yeah. traveling the property in a certain direction consistently. Is how I'm catching him. And I don't mm-hmm. want to change his pattern. I just want to make the I just want to make the one corner a little bit more attractive to make him have to walk, continue to walk the entire length of the property. Um, that way, I have more you know ambush opportunities, I guess, for him. The place yeah. I catch him the most often, I think, is close to his bed. The only saving grace is well, there's it's it, there's a pro and a con. There's a doe bedding area in between where I would have to try to access that the stand location and where he's where he's bedding. However, if I use the the road because it's on this dirt road, um, that's just like a normal access road for houses and stuff like that around around that area. Um, but there's plenty of road traffic that happens there, so it's not undisturbed. 
So the, my access point would be to walk that road literally and then just perpendicular right into my stand off, off of mm-hmm. that road. Cause it's probably only a hundred yards off the, like the little borough access road. And I would be able to get in there probably pretty well undetected because he's either he's either betting across the road on the neighbor's property because it's pretty thick and nasty and some, there's some elevation over there. Or he's betting in the northwest corner of our property, which before my dad had bought it you know, years ago, someone had gone in and done a bunch of hedge cunning and just almost made like a hurricane zone where it's just a bunch of deadfall and just it's pretty nasty. Um, so I think he's betting in one of those two areas. I think I could possibly, to your point, get in super early in the morning. If I don't want to risk it, though, there's a little saddle that he likes to travel on the way to there's two water holes, natural uh, spring fed water holes that he heads to during the summer. And then there's a big field on the back side of that. And then on the back side of that of our property, there's a big CRP field. So those are the kind of his his areas. So I think I have a line of travel with him that I can probably try to get on him. Uh, but I, I yeah. think to your point, I'd probably try him in the evening first unless I just get a blistering cold front that I think would be good for the morning. Yeah, I think, you, I mean, there's. I'm sure there are situations where morning hunts are, are, you know, that make sense, um, you know, specifically other than during the rut. I mean, I don't hunt morning except during the rut um, myself. And, and this partly just has to do with the effectiveness and uh, the amount of impact that you, you have trying to kill a buck at a time when they're pretty hard to kill. Um, but also it has to do with my time. You know, there's only so much time that, that we've got, you know, no matter what you do for a living, you can't just go hunting all the time. You know, there's <laughs> right. still, you know, family obligations and work obligations and employees. And then, you know, there's always issues. So, you know, just trying to make the best use of my time. I rarely hunt mornings except during the rut. Um, but I, I feel like, you know, the, the situation you described, there's probably, you know, a few morning opportunities in there where you're not right on top of the bed, you know, where you're hunting, you know, his, his travel routes, potential travel routes. But I would still be a little bit leery because you still have to get there ahead of him. It's harder to do that in the morning than it is at night. You know, it's easy to get into in front of a, a deer for his afternoon patterns than it is for his morning patterns, because um, you can sneak in at noon if you want to, and you're there four hours before he gets out of his bed. But it's really hard to sneak anywhere dark, you know. And, and I don't want to be there for four hours before the sun comes up. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, know, I don't right? want to do that. Man. I know, right? I think. But, yeah. So, so anyway, that, that's kind of my thoughts on it. Is, yeah. I mean, you might have an opportunity there, but in general, I would say that uh, morning hunt, hunts for box are more of a rut time thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, I, I usually try to make it evenings unless, you know, unless I have like a dead ringer, you know, a guy that's on a pattern that I know that I can, that I can get in. It's like, I'll, I'll save that for, as you had mentioned, the rut. Because the other thing is, too, it's like that's that's one camera that's placed there. It's like who knows how many times he's slipping behind that camera, you know, uh, b- you know, during dark that I'm not catching him. You know what I mean? Because that's a possibility, too. So I'm looking at it going, I think I have him in the morning, but, you know, that could just be the handful of times he's passing the camera, too. You know, so. Yeah, he, he might be taking a completely different, slightly different route at, you know, hour before the end of legal shooting time every afternoon, too. So. That's what I'm saying is once I find that buck that I'm excited about, I start closing my cameras in around him to, to learn whatever else I can. So what I'd recommend on that deer, if you're really excited about that buck, is to have three or four cameras there picking him up in as many different possible places as you can. Because um, right now you've got a small part or a big part of his pattern. You just don't know which part it is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're making conclusions as if you have a big part of his pattern figured out, but you may only have a very small part. Um, right. You just don't yeah. know that. 
And this, and this was the first year we had this property, so didn't hunt it at all. I literally just hung cameras for the whole year and just watched okay. um, to see, you know, what was going on and try to get an understanding. That way, hopefully this year I can dial it in a little bit more. But I wanted to ask, you know, if you, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how you dial in your cameras and, you know, how you kind of shrink the, the zone. Do you do anything differently when, when rut, when, you know, the, the rut time frame hits in terms of like your camera strategy and what you're looking for? Uh, I mean, myself, and it's, it's debatable, uh, what to do during the rut. Um, and people always criticize this approach and they may be right. You know, I'm not going to say that they are, or they aren't, I'm, I could be wrong. I just don't run cameras during the rut. Um, you know, I don't want to mess with it, you know, because it's, you have to be on them so consistently for that information to mean anything. Like, let's say if you run your cameras every four days, let's say you've got 10 cameras out. I mean, you're not going to run 10 cameras during the middle of the day while you're rut hunting. So that means you're probably going to run three a day or something like that. You know, cause you've only got a certain amount of time. You want to be back in a tree somewhere. Um, I just don't feel like I want to be hustling that much. I'd rather go, you know, grab a bite to eat, get back in the tree somewhere. Um, whereas other people say, well, I want to know exactly what's going on when, and they might be right. You know, they might be finding bucks that have moved into an area that are on a hot doe and he's there for a couple, three days, and then he's gone. Well, I wouldn't know that. All I would know is where his traditional fall range is, and I would keep hunting him there, even if he left you know, and, and was on a doe someplace else. I wouldn't know. I would just be waiting for him. Um, so there, there's a weakness in it. Um, but that's just the way I like to hunt, I guess. I don't want to be stressed out all the time. Right. You know? So you know, if I'm working and hunting and running cameras – and, you know, doing family activities and stuff like that, it kind of takes the fun out of hunting. All you're doing is hustling, hustling, hustling. Um, so I just shut them down about the 25th or so of October. That's about when I really start my serious rut hunting. I don't usually hunt mornings until around the 25th of October here in the Midwest. So at that point, that's kind of it then. You know, now my day is f- filled with hunting. You know, I don't want to be you know, I've I got enough other stuff to do. I just don't want to run cameras anymore. So once again, it's just me. You know, I think it's, you know, other people might say that that's a weakness and they might be right. right. Um, so, yeah, I think for, for me, it's like, I kind of follow a similar, a similar pattern there. Um, you know, I, I have little, I won't say I have a little, I have a lot of time to hunt in comparison to probably a lot of people, you know, that, that don't work in the outdoor industry, I guess is a way to frame it. Um, but whenever I do hit that time frame where I'm, when I'm taking time off to, to be in the timber, you're right. It's like the last thing I want to be doing is prioritizing, checking cameras. You know, I try to base my moves on what I've learned either in years past or, you know, that, uh, you know, the earlier part of the season and make my plans based on that and kind of thinking in that, you know, that kind of mindset, you know, are there, do you have any philosophies, I guess, you know, on, on how often you might, so I guess two part question, do you have any philosophies on how, you know, often a, 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 a buck during the rut might cycle through specific bedding areas. So if you know your property or the piece of public land you're hunting or whatever the case is, and you know, there's, you know, these four bedding areas or five bedding areas, however many there might be, you know, and it's within this, what you might consider a deer's core range, it's say, um, is there kind of a time frame that you say, you know, I know that he will cycle through within four to five days, you know, he can, he'll be at each of these places. And then I guess the second part of that is how much are you paying attention to historical uh, data in terms of historical sighting. So if a buck isn't showing up to your property at all during, you know, the early part of fall, but he always shows up like the 24th of October and, you know, and you, and you'll have some on the hoof sightings of him and then he'll disappear. 
you know, how much do you play with the, the uh, historical information as well? The, uh, so, so getting to the first one first, it, it's, uh, it depends on the deer. Um, the older they get, and this doesn't help the PA people very much, unfortunately. And, and, uh, you know, it kind of came out in my Harrisburg presentation too. I was going through it and talking about when they get really old, they get easier to kill. And everybody's looking at me like, what do you mean by really old? Is that right. like two years old? Yeah, right. No, sorry. Right. It's like six. Right. <laughs> you know, so if he's old, they, they, they're, they're actually, you know, we could go, we could talk about this for a really long time too, but once they get past a certain point, they actually become more daylight active and easier to kill. Um, Interesting. And, and not every single one does, but by and large, the trend is, you know, we, we get excited every year when they get away because we know that it's going to get easier the next year, you know, past age five or six. So that makes a, a difference uh, on, on otherwise, you know, if you're hunting a four-year-old buck in, in my area, you might never see him. Um, you know, unless you've got a lot of proof on your cameras that he's moving in daylight, he may he may just never show up. You might spend the whole season. He's either going through at night or, you know, it's probably what he's doing. Um, so it really depends on the deer a lot. Um, the, the the amount of traffic that a, a mature deer, like your target deer, let's say, and not just your generic two-year-old that, that you know, and say a three-plus-year-old deer in areas that are fairly heavily hunted and say a four- or five-plus-year-old deer in areas like my area where that aren't as heavily hunted, um, you don't see them as often as you think you should. And that's just the reality of it. And, and that's where, you know, I think people get tripped up is they think they're doing something wrong when it's just the reality of the way these deer behave. Uh, you know, if, like, for example, I hunted a deer in, in 2016 that we had nicknamed Skinny. I was getting a decent number of daylight pictures of this deer, uh, but uh, uh, not consistently in any one area kind of scattered around you know maybe a couple a week you know and i finally killed that deer uh let's see three weeks after i started hunting him the very first time i saw him so i hunted him for three weeks morning and evening before i saw him and i had some pretty decent intel on that deer you know telling me where more or less he was spending most of his time so i knew pretty good idea where his range was and everything you know, and I still only saw him once. Um, so it's, uh, you know, a little bit sobering from that standpoint. You just have to have a realistic expectation of, of, you know, what's going on. But if you're saying that the deer lives in a certain area and, you know, if you see him in daylight once or twice, you're probably doing pretty good. Um, yeah. And that's, that's, that's the reality. And then the other thing that really triggers the rut that, you know, people are, they, they don't realize, they see a lot of activity and they think, wow, the rut's really going today. Then the next day it's shut down to almost nothing. And like, wow, the rut's really not moving today. Well, <laughs> all that happened was there was probably a hot doe someplace in that area, um, you know, the day before and every buck was there looking for her. And they thought that somehow that this was the, the normal movement during the rut. Um, so the rut kind of runs in ebbs and flows. Um, even in really good areas, you get one, you know, you might be on a bedding ridge and it'd be like 10 bucks go past. You're like, wow, what a spot. I'm going to hunt here every morning for the rest of my life. <laughs> right. And, and, and you never see anything like that again or very, very rarely. And you really don't realize that what happened was right before you got in the stand, a doe went through that was in estrus. Um, or one of the does that you saw kind of, you know, 
padding their way through there early on in the hunt was hot. Um, they all show up then. So there's a lot of randomness to the rut. All you can do is make the best decisions that you can based on knowing where a buck that you'd love to shoot probably lives. And then, you know, you hope for luck to, to kind of fall your way. Um, the only time it's not like that is, like I said, when you're hunting a really old deer and those deer are, are so much easier to kill. Um, and, and people say, oh man, when they get old, they're like ghosts. Well, they are when, when they're old and most, most people's relatives are ghosts. I mean, those are really tough to kill. You know, I don't care what anybody says. They're four and five-year-old bucks are hard to kill. And then uh, they get to be six, and they're like a whole different animal again. And then seven, it's like, well, they're like, oh, I don't know. I just get up in the morning and go for a walk. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, like what I've been doing is working. They, I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah, they just seem to lose something um, as they get past that point of, of full maturity. And uh, I don't think they're senile. I just think they've gotten um, comfortable right in, in their area and they just they just don't sense that they're not as nervous and they just feed more and they're just i don't know like i said they're just easier to kill so that has a big part of it to play um you know one two-year-old bucks are fairly easy to kill if there's a num- decent number of them you know three-year-old bucks they get a little bit tougher um if there's a decent number of them they're still fairly easy to kill in in, in most of the midwest for example um but the reason they're really hard to kill in some places like PA is because there just aren't any hardly. Right, you know, yeah. The numbers are just so low on the deer of that age class. If there was enough of them, people would be you know, having a lot of success with that age class of deer. Um, so when they get to be four and five, and, you know, a friend of mine, is, uh, and I'm sure you've heard of him, his name is Stan Potts, but um, he said that you don't have to protect four-year-old bucks. He said that if you're trying to create you know, a, a great hunting area, you've got to protect them until they're four. And then once they get to be four, they can protect themselves. Um, and what that means is they just don't travel during the daylight very much. It's, they're not smarter. That's the interesting thing about bucks. Everybody thinks, oh, they get older and they get smarter. They don't get smarter. They just don't move during the day as much. Um, it's just physiology. Uh, it, it even happens where they're hardly being hunted. You know, like even on this farm, you know, I can keep the pressure completely off an area of the farm, and I can run cameras there, and there'll still be a, a fair number of four-year-old bucks that are only nocturnal in that area, even though I'm not even hunting it and, and nobody's even hunted anywhere in that area for years. Um, it's just the way they're wired. So anyway, um, yeah. I know we kind of got sidetracked. There. Yeah, no, that's okay. I think if we think about it, though, as you were talking though, and you were, you were mentioning how like, as they get older, it seems like, you know, the, the, um, you know, older bucks, you know, are, aren't, or are easier to hunt to a degree. It's like, I was thinking of myself, like, as a person, you know, as I'm, when I'm younger, I'm a lot more active. And then you hit this part of your life where you're, you know, you, you get smart, you know what I mean? It's like, so you, you mitigate risk to a degree, right. And at certain Mm -hmm. part of your life, and then you hit another phase of your life where it's like, you know, maybe it's like my grandfather or whatever. He's like, whatever. I just don't care anymore. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) So, (laughs) and I think there's something to that, but what I also think is there's something that, that, uh, um, I don't know what it is, if it could even be physiological, like they, their rutting urge or their testosterone levels or something maybe changes. You know, there might be something actually physiologically that changes in that deer that just makes them think about feeding or makes them, you know, it's just they, they aren't, they just aren't wired as tight. Um, 
So it's just a, it's a cool phenomenon. I love that fact, you know, because it gives us a little bit of hope, you know, when they keep getting away, it's like, well, maybe next year it'll be easier to kill, you know? <laughs> right, right. Um, exactly. And we've definitely seen that. I've seen it big time in some of these bucks that started hunting when they were four, you know, and just, you know, hunting them up through five, six. And then once they got to be six, it was like, wow, this is the easiest deer on the whole farm to pattern. And it's like two years ago, I could, I couldn't even find him. And now he's looking for me. He was following me to my office. Um, <laughs> You know, so, so anyway, just, and again, it's unfortunate that there are parts of the country where this just doesn't apply. And, and I, I appreciate that 100%. And I realize how tough it is to kill, you know, these larger deer, or these more mature deer in areas where they just don't exist. Um, you know, so we're kind of talking, you know, to maybe a, a subset of your, of your listeners. Right. I think the good news for everyone out there listening, you know, that's, that's from Pennsylvania, at least, is that, you know, they've, they have done some things to try to help the age structure of the deer. And I think we're seeing it trend in a positive direction to a degree. I know personally, it's like I've seen more people kill nicer deer and older deer um, in Pennsylvania than I have, you know, probably all my life in the past few years. And that deer that I was patterning this year, he was, you know, he was a 40 year old. That was the first 40 year old we ever had on that farm. Um, So that was kind of like a big milestone. You know, we do food plotting and stuff like that and try to take care of the habitat to, to help. Um, But that was a big deal. You know, first 40 year old old deer. And we had a handful of three year olds, which was just, not the norm for, for that farm in this area, um, yeah. which was, which was really cool to see. I wanted to ask you, you know, you know, hunting the rut and, you know, we kind of talked through how you're patterning and, you know, and what you're looking for to pattern a deer and how you kind of use cameras and, and how you approach like some of the historical data and stuff like that. And I want to get a sense now of like, I know you mentioned that if you have a deer, you think yeah. you have a low chance. I, I think to, from a historical. I'm sorry. I, I was going to ask, I was going to say, you know, I wanted to get a, a chance to ask, you know, you, you'd mentioned that you, you might take more risk if, if there's a, um, how do I say this? If, if there's a deer that you think you're going to have limited opportunities at, right? Maybe he's living off the property and you're just not getting enough, you know, inventory of him. So I'm curious, you know, what you do in terms of uh, scent control and then also like what your approach is to playing the wind and how, you know, some guys I talk to, they're really, really cautious about the wind. Like they won't hunt a wind unless it's like the perfect wind. Other guys I talk to, it's like they're always willing to kind of risk a wind to a degree because they feel that they have to give the deer the wind to, to a certain extent. So I'm just curious what your kind of perspective is on that. I don't think so because um, if, you, if you maybe different areas where the deer are hunted more heavily, they might relate to the wind more specifically. <clears throat> but if you think about it, what if we had a west wind for a week? We've had situations like that. I can remember one year we had a west wind for two weeks. So does that mean that every single deer in the county or every single buck in the county is going to be stacked up on the west side of the county because he's only traveling into the wind? Um, You know, I mean, obviously at night you say, well, at night they're going to travel with the wind at their back. Yeah, they are, but they also are probably during the daytime too. Um, You know, they may not be on their feet quite as much, and they might be a little bit more careful about how they travel. You might have to get them on a crosswind someplace. But if you think about it, they get out of their bed, if they're moving at all during the day, are they only going to go straight west? No. I mean, they're going to go wherever the does are or wherever the food is, and they might have bedded strategically, you know, if they could sort of sense that. I'm not sure if they, if they can forecast wind direction. So let's say he beds based on an east wind, and then the wind switches. Does he get up and change beds? Maybe, you know. So then he wakes up or not, you know, whatever doesn't wake up, but he gets out of his bed at, hour before the end of legal shooting time and he goes someplace um is he only going to head into the wind 
Uh, no, I mean, that's not necessarily where he wants to go. Uh, so I think that's overblown. Uh, maybe a crosswind makes him feel a little bit more comfortable, but I've killed a lot of bucks. And again, I'm hunting areas that don't get very much hunting pressure. I've killed a ton of bucks with a dead square tailwind on the deer. Um, so I, don't, I, I always think 100% in my favor. Um, I'm not saying that I don't sometimes give up a quartering angle or a crossing wind or something like that, you know, because that's what the wind direction is for the buck I want to hunt. But I don't avoid hunting a certain buck when I have the 100% advantage and he has no advantage. Um, I, I don't feel like he's going to, you know, stay in his bed till dark or that he's going to go only in the opposite direction because that's where the wind's coming from. Um, maybe in areas where the hunting pressure is higher, you know, he might stay in his bed until dark um, in that situation. You know, because he's like, well, I don't want to head in that direction without a wind advantage, so I'm going to wait. Um, the thing that we see more than that, and this is what you'll find pretty pretty interesting, is, is uh, when it's dead still, our deer don't move at all. Uh, yeah, they just stand there. And and you'll I'll watch it. I mean, it's like if it's dead calm, I might as well just go home. I mean, I'm not going to see anything, <laughs> you know. And, and I think it's because they can hear every noise. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're not comfortable with having a sense of, you know, what direction anything is coming from. You know, they're just overwhelmed with being able to hear everything. So they just stand and they listen. They hear the road. You know, they hear a, a car going down the gravel road. They hear a dog bark. They hear a door slam. They hear kids laughing when they get off the school bus. They listen to all that stuff intently, and they just don't They don't even take a step. Um, whereas when the wind is blowing, I like about an 8-mile-per-hour to 15-mile-per-hour, even 20-mile-per-hour wind. I like wind, um, and it covers up, you know, my noise that I make going to and from my tree stands. Um, it almost seems to set the deer at ease more uh, because they can't hear everything, so they're not trying to. So they're just off doing what deer do. Um, so anyway, that's just something that, that we've seen, you know, repeatedly and, and almost to the point of, you know, it's not quite a law, but it's almost a law, you know, where I hunt, that if it's dead calm, they just aren't going to move. Right. Uh, so anyway. I always like to kind of wrap things up with one one final question. I just like to always get a, a hunting story from from our guests and have them give us the details from the, the the tailgate of the truck. You know, back to the tailgate if you wouldn't mind. So something that's memorable to you it could be it could be a near miss. It could be you know a, a harvest or or anything in between. I, I think the uh, kind of a fun one, and it's got a good lesson with it too. Was uh, a buck that I killed in 2016, and it was a deer that. Uh, we had nicknamed this deer Lefty. Uh, he was a five-year-old deer, and I knew he was in that area because I'd gotten lots of pictures of him and, and filmed him as a three-year-old and lots of trail cam pictures of him as a four-year-old. So I knew he was living there, and I waited till he hit five to start hunting him. And interestingly enough, he didn't get bigger <clears throat> Excuse me, from four to five, even though I thought that he would. Um, but but uh, the part about that hunt that made it fun for me was the little piece of strategy. There was a small, probably about a two to three acre cornfield that was near where this deer was living. And I thought, you know, the deer love cornfields right after the pick, you know, because there's enough waste grain that's laying on top of the ground after the combine goes through and they just go through there. And I don't know if it's the smell or what it is that kind of fires them up and the deer will just converge on a pick cornfield for a couple of days, mm-hmm. you know, maybe three, four days, and then they'll just, you know, kind of lose interest in it. But I thought as soon as they pick this, uh, I'm going to be there because that's where I'm going to kill this deer. He's going to be following some does or whatever, you know, out onto this little pick cornfield the day after they pick it. And uh, 
there wasn't a good stand location, and there almost never is in a three-acre feeding area. If you're hunting with a bow, um, you know, that's the size of three football fields, basically, and it's, right. that's a big area to cover with a bow. So you got to get pretty lucky on, on being in the right tree. So I thought, well, what I'm going to do then, I know that the deer don't pay any attention to farm equipment. So I've got this blind on a trailer, and as soon as the combine rolls out of that field, you know, before the noise is even quieted down, I'm going to drive in there with this blind on this trailer and drop it off right in the middle of this field. Or at least, you know, I've got a little bit of a strategic advantage with, you know, a little roll to the train. But mm-hmm. you're not going to get out of there at the end of legal shooting time without spooking deer unless somebody comes and bumps them. You right. know, so you might as well be in the middle, you know. And uh, so I put it in a spot where I could cover almost the whole three acres and uh, waited for the wind to get right so it wasn't blowing in the direction where I thought the deer were bedded. It took a couple of days. Then I went back and got into that blind, and I killed that buck the first night in there that I hunted him. And he came out straight across the little field from me, never even looked at the blind. He just came out and looked up and down the field, never even glanced at the blind. Uh, I ended up killing him, you know, right there within a, you know, a few seconds of him stepping out of the, of the woods. I thought it was kind of cool just how that, you know, took advantage of, you know, a little bit more of a creative hunting style um, that made it fun. Uh, just a, like I said, just a, a quick memory of, of, a, of a cool hunt, but it's something that I've done that with ground blinds too. Not, not, it doesn't have to be on a trailer. You know, as soon as the farmer picks the cornfield, put a blind in there because the deer have never seen that field without the corn in it. Um, and and when the when the corn's gone and there's a blind sitting there, they're not all stressed out about that blind. But you give them a couple of days and then you put the blind in, and now they've seen that field without the blind in it and no corn, and they're stressed out when you put the blind in there. Right. Um, so it's just kind of a little quick tip. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. That's that's awesome. Hey, before we let you go, if you wouldn't mind, uh, make sure you just mention all the uh, different places people might be able to uh, to find you and find out more about what you're up to. Okay. Yeah, the, the the main place I think where we create the most amount of engagement and content with people is on the MidwestWhitetail.com website. Um, our YouTube channel, Midwest Whitetail, and we've got uh, the uh, Midwest Whitetail Daily, where we post daily video blogs, and that's most active during the fall, of course, but we're posting some stuff now with shed hunting and and scouting and stuff on that channel as well. Um, but all that stuff is also on the website. There's a lot of, you know, more interaction type of, of uh, content on the website. Uh, then uh, we also have a uh, a streaming channel called Whitetail TV, and you can find that on Roku, Amazon Fire, or Apple TV. So if you go into those stores and, and do a search under Whitetail TV, you'll find our app there that you can load onto your television um, or your, I guess it's your device if you're using, you know, Fire Stick or whatever, you know, Apple TV and and, uh, the Roku Stick. You can load our app, and that becomes a channel that you can view our stuff, you know, right on your television. Of course, you can watch YouTube on most smart TVs also. Those are the the main places. We've got a Facebook page, uh, the Midwest Whitetail Facebook page. Um, But uh, those are, you know, like I said, we really like having people come to the website because we feel like, you know, we can have a nice engagement and create a nice community there with uh, with people visiting the site and, and hopefully, you know, create some value for them. Um, so 
that's the main those are the main places awesome yeah and everyone out there listening be sure to check uh check out all the stuff bill has going on i usually like i mentioned previously i, I binge it during the off season it kind of gets me primed up if i ever need a little uh, a little pick me up as we uh are, are a little ways away from hunting season so be sure to follow them on instagram facebook and check them out on youtube and of course the uh the website bill thanks for uh for taking some time out of your out of your morning to talk some deer hunting with me i appreciate it yeah my pleasure and and uh, yeah good luck this fall i'm curious to see how you do with some of these deer that we've been talking about it's pretty cool uh deer stories are fun yeah yeah they are so uh i'll sure we'll be in, i'm sure we'll be in touch again if i if i happen to get any good pictures of him i'll, I'll shoot him your way so you can check him out awesome i look forward to it all right thanks bill you bet have a good day all right folks that is a wrap for today's show we'd like to thank bill for joining us and be sure to check out midwestwhitetail.com and give them a follow on all their social media properties I, of course, highly recommend following their Chasing November web video series on YouTube. Binge watching this might just help you get through the offseason. I know that I do, or I watch a fair amount of that during the offseason. We'd, of course, like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast to make sure that all the new uh, upcoming episodes are delivered directly to your uh, devices. We'd be very much appreciative if you do that. And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Trophy Ridge, Ozonics, Obsession Bows, Tecamani Seed, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, and Trophy Taker Rests. And until next time, we'll see y'all. gang the new truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on youtube below any of the truth from the stand videos i've got some new hats beanies t-shirts long sleeve t-shirts and sweatshirts there's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro dosing adversity so head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code truth t-r-u-t-h and save yourself some cash on the new gear